0: All right, thanks, Eric, and uh, first turkey of the year, right? Unless you're one of those people that eat turkey bacon. None of those people in the room, right? Yeah, maybe some of those people in the room. But anyway, I'm looking forward to tonight. night. I hope you come. If you haven't planned to come, please do. Uh, bring a dessert. That's a big part of it. Try to have it here by 4 o'clock. It'd be awesome so they can get it cut up. And uh, if you are not trying to eat sweets, stay out of the lobby. Just a little advice. Uh, stay out of the lobby. All right, so I'm glad you're here today. Uh, If I haven't met you yet, my name is Randy. I'd love to meet you, and I'm excited about today. This is a pretty cool study. We've been in the book of Acts. You know, I love going through the Bible, and we cover topics that we don't normally look about or or think about a lot. And uh, so, we've been uh, studying the book of Acts for a few weeks now. We're going to continue on uh, in our study. Now, several years ago, Uh, We kind of like uh, going to the movies. Several years ago, uh, there was a man, uh, a star named Liam Neeson, probably heard of him, who was in a very successful movie called The Gray. I don't know if any of you saw that movie or not, but The Gray was a story about a group of oil men in Alaska who are coming out, and they are in a plane crash, and then the survivors of that crash actually are stalked by a um, pack of gray wolves. And one by one, as they go through the drama of this movie, one by one, the men are killed until, predictably, Neeson is the only one left. And then at the end of the movie, he stumbles into the wolf's den and comes face to face with the alpha wolf. Now, I won't ruin the ending of the movie for you, but I will tell you, it's kind of abrupt and unexpected. Now, wolves are kind of are beautiful, no doubt about that, but they're kind of aggressive and can be very dangerous. Now, don't be worried about going out at night, though, because in Kentucky there are no wild wolves, uh, we're told, and probably never will be. They were, but they were killed off about the early 1900s. So it's okay. You can just see that and think about it, but not be afraid. Now, I share that with you because the Bible talks about wolves as well, and uh, usually it gives the context in contrast to the shepherd caring for the sheep. So the picture is given is that believers are spoken of as sheep, and Jesus is the good shepherd, and wolves want to destroy the sheep. Now, I don't want to go too far, of course, but goats are mentioned as well, and goats are the problem people in the flock, right? Like goats are always a problem no matter where they are, basically. And sometimes goats actually become wolves, but I digress, right? So the reality is that Christians are like sheep, and the church is like a fold, a sheepfold, or a pen uh, that the sheep come into where we have protection under Christ, in Christ, and we also have protection under his under shepherds who are the elders. So it's a beautiful picture that Jesus paints there the care that God has for his church family. And then the Bible goes on to say that Jesus laid down his life for the sheep and commissioned leaders to do the same thing. So leaders in the church, whatever level they may be, elders and pastors and Deacons and servants and group leaders, were all shepherds in a way under those that we care for and minister to. But the Bible tells us that the wolves are always at the door. The wolves are always looking for weak sheep to pick off, always looking for ways to get in and cause problems. And today, our study is one about how wolves attack one of the church's early shepherds and how the wolves came to the door. And the story about, is about a man named Stephen And the story begins in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. It says, Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicily and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom of the Spirit, excuse me, the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So here we find a picture of Stephen, uh, one of the new deacons. Remember, last week we talked about there were seven deacons that were appointed by the church to care for the church family and said that they were to be full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. And and, uh, Stephen met that mold. And the Holy Spirit's working in him in a great way. He's a sold out believer, he is serving, he's uh, sharing, but he's not just serving, now he's kind of moved on to another role, he's working miracles signs and people are being healed and demons are being cast out and people are being raised from the dead and winning people to Jesus. People are being saved and healed and restored. Everything is going great in the church. But here comes the wolves. The wolves are coming in. But you know what? It's not the, the people you expect. And what I've found is that when wolves attack, it never is the people that you would expect. It never is the wolf that you expect to come to the door. Now, and Based on our study, you would expect the Jewish leaders— The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the temple leaders, high priests and priests of that day, they've been badgering the church. If you've been with us, you know that they've been giving the church a hard way to go all along. But in this case, the wolves come from a different source. They come from a specific synagogue of which there were many in the city of Jerusalem. there There was a temple worship, but there were synagogues scattered out all over Jerusalem and neighboring towns. And one of these synagogues was called the synagogue of the freedmen. And this particular one was a group of Hellenistic Jews. Now, if you were with us last week, you remember that the problem in the church that threatened to divide the church, an internal issue, was that there were widows in the church who were of the Hellenistic community that felt like the Hebraic Jews were being Uh, preferred over them. They were being neglected, and that's why the deacons were asked to step up and serve. And so uh, Stephen was one of those people. He actually was a Hellenistic Jewish Christian, and he was selected to serve the Hellenistic widow community. So this is one of their own that they're dealing with here. So the group that step up are Hellenistic Jews They opposed him. They were slaves, the freedmen. They were slaves who had once been uh, enslaved in other parts of the world, in places like uh, northern Africa and Asia. And they had been freed, and they had returned back to Jerusalem, and then set up their own synagogue there in Jerusalem under the temple worship. At any rate, they're offended by Stephen, one of their own basically, and his teaching. And they took his message to mean that the temple and the law of Moses were no longer valid in how God dealt with mankind. So that's what they got from the message there. They kind of missed the idea of the Messiah, but they got this negative view. They picked out these couple things, these couple issues, and began to focus on them. Now, Stephen was only re, repeating the themes that Jesus had taught. Remember, Jesus had said God's way of communicating with people was changing, that the old law was being passed aside and, and uh, being, being put away. And that the temple itself would be destroyed, which, by the way, it was destroyed in 70 A.D., just a few short years later. So Jesus was was saying there's going to be a new way of worship, something new is coming. And these Jews, even though they didn't live originally in Jerusalem themselves, they had come in, and now they felt very threatened. So Stephen wasn't preaching anything new or radical uh, other than what Jesus had taught, but he was on fire for Christ. And his enemies could not stand up. When they tried to argue with him and refute what he was saying, his wisdom and the Holy Spirit overwhelmed them, which made them even more angry. So you got a bunch of of, of guys that are hurt, they're offended, they become defensive, and they begin to attack. So it says, Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. <clears throat> they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testify, This fellow never stopped speaking against his holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw the face, that his face was like the face of an angel." Now, if you remember, Jesus had told his his disciples that the gospel message would be controversial. Jesus was very controversial in religious circles. He was loved outside those circles, but he was controversial there. And we're about to see that controversy go fatal, literally explode here in the life of Stephen. And so, the goal of these men, this synagogue of freedmen, was very simple. They want to discredit the shepherd and destroy the ministry. So, you tear down the leader, seemingly and you tear down the ministry. So they dragged Stephen before the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body of the Jews in that day, and they bring in these false witnesses that they have paid to bring up things that either Stephen didn't say and didn't mean or reinterpret some things he did say in a way that he didn't intend. You know, when you think about it, isn't this how they treated Jesus? They did the very same thing to him. They began to attack him and bring in false witnesses against him, and they began to use his words that he was saying and twist them in a way that was uh, uh, the most negative way. Instead of looking at the positive side, they looked at the negative side, and they had distorted his teaching to the point that the popular opinion turned against him. That was with Jesus, and the same thing happened with Stephen here. So here's Stephen before the highest court of the Jews. He's being falsely accused. He's being attacked and, and, and yet, however, though, he is, is not upset. He's not ruffled at all. You know, Jesus had told his disciples, when you're brought before uh, councils and, and, you know, uh, authorities, don't be afraid. Because I'll give you the words to say. And, and Stephen is personifying that exactly. He's not angry. He's not defensive. He's not derogatory. He's not accusatory. He's not fearful. In fact, his face was like that of an angel. Because he just exhibited and reflected the perfect peace and the confidence of someone that know that God was in control. And he was willing that to, to put his life in God's hands. And whatever happened, he wanted to bring glory to God. That was his goal. It should be all of our goal. But this was a hot spot for Stephen. Now, they do give him a chance to speak. And instead of defending himself... He preaches a sermon. You know, that was kind of the way that they got. When they got an audience, they didn't defend themselves and apologize or excuse. They just preach a sermon about Jesus. And so this sermon that that Stephen preaches is probably his first sermon, and it's also his last sermon. But he did a great job. It was a great sermon that he preached there. Now, it's the whole seventh chapter of Acts, and it's 53 verses. So I'm going to do you a favor and not read it all to you, all right? I think you'll appreciate that. However, I'm going to summarize it for you because we really need to talk about what was in that message there. In the message, Stephen gives a panorama of Old Testament history. I would encourage you to read it. That would be great to read it. But basically, it's just an overview of Old Testament history, and he makes two major points. These are important because these were their accusations against him. Number one, God never, ever confined himself to a building like the temple. That's one thing. Their gripe was about the temple being destroyed. So the first thing was God never, ever said, I got to live in a building, all right? The second point that he makes is that the Jew people had a habit of rejecting and killing the ones that God sent to instruct them. This was how they reacted to people when they came to confront them. So he's going to break that down as we go through it. So, Stephen isn't trying to defend himself. He's trying to give a defense of pure Christianity and focus on who Jesus is and what it's all about, and the fact that this is now God's new and appointed way of worship and of coming before the Father. And so, Stephen begins with Abraham, which was a great place to begin because Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. He reminds them that when Abraham was called, he was a pagan. He wasn't a godly man at all. God found favor with Abraham and called him from a pagan nation. And God promised that he would have a son who would then be the father of a great nation from whom would come the one who would be a blessing to the whole world. If you remember his call and his promise, God said, I'm going to make of you a great nation, even though he didn't have any children at the time and, and no prospects at all. And that would be Jesus. That's the point. This is Jesus we're talking about, the Messiah, the Son of God. So God called Abraham when, from a pagan nation when there was no tabernacle, there was no temple, there was no land to call his own. So it wasn't a land, it wasn't the temple, it was the people that God was focusing on. And then God started the Jewish nation with Abraham's son Isaac, and then Jacob, who if you remember, was the one who was first called Israel. He wrestled with God. And God named him Israel. So that's where the name Israel came from, from that Jewish nation. So they know all this stuff, but he's kind of reminding them and, and pulling this out. And it's good for us to think about a refresher. And then he goes to Joseph, who was Abraham's great-grandson. Joseph, you recall, was God's leader, but he, um, but he was opposed and hated by his brothers. Remember, at one point, they tried to kill him. They ended up compromising by selling him into slavery into, into Egypt, but they hated him even though he was trying to lead his brothers. And so they end up later on, a few years later, when there's a famine, they end up being taken to Egypt by Joseph, and there they survive. So they're in a foreign nation, 400 years, but they're still God's people, and God was with them. Out of their country, no country, no building, but God was there. God was with his people. Next, Stephen talks about Moses. While they were in Egypt, the Jews became enslaved, and they called out to God. And God raised up a deliverer named Moses, who was empowered by God to preach and work signs and wonders to convince Pharaoh to let God's people go. But if you remember the story, (coughs) Moses was opposed by Pharaoh, but he was also opposed by his own people. They rejected him, even though God had raised him up to deliver them, they rejected him initially in in Egypt, didn't want to go with him, he was causing them problems, and then even when they got in the wilderness, after the ten plagues and they're released, they're released, given freedom to leave and worship God, and God has sent Moses and given them the law through Moses, but the people rebelled against Moses, their deliverer, they had rebelled against him as well, followed other gods, other leaders, built idols, the calves, and worshipped them instead of God. And so they overall rejected Moses and turned their hearts back to Egypt. And in verse 42, he reminds them, but God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. Their idol worship was so bad that God just gave them up for a time. And then God forgave them and brought them back again. But as far as as God being present in a place, which was one of their complaints, they didn't even have a building uh, uh, to worship in until Moses led them in building the tabernacle. Which, if you recall, was a portable and temporary shelter made out of animal skins. And they carried it along with them and set it up to worship whenever they stopped to the camp. And that sufficed through the leadership of Moses and then Joshua and then the judges and Samuel and then David. If you kinda of look at the story, they didn't have a they didn't have a building through any of that. They had this temporary place. And finally Solomon finally built the temple. But Stephen insisted, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. You're so hung up on the temple, that's not where God lives. Now, throughout all of his speech, Stephen is foreshadowing Jesus. You know, it's not just a history lesson. He's talking about Jesus. In verse 37, this is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. So what he was saying is that all of this history is about Jesus. Abraham's about Jesus. Israel's about Jesus. Jesus. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Stephen, Solomon, the temple, the priesthood, it's all about Jesus. It's not about that stuff, that place, that building. It's all about Jesus. It's a great history lesson to kind of show us how God's plan was being worked out throughout Old Testament history. And he's shown the people that God didn't need a temple to live in. God lives in the hearts of his people. And in fact, as Jesus had said, the temple would be replaced as it was. And now the Bible says that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives in us. And he also shows them <clears throat> that God's messengers had always been oppressed and rejected and attacked by the Jewish nation. Again, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, and many, many others. But you know what the Jewish leaders they didn't get it, and Stephen probably realized that. And so, as he's gone through this whole history lesson for them, he concludes his speech with a harsh ending. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have, been, you have betrayed and murdered him. You have been you, excuse me, you ha- who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. Now, this guy has never taken a lesson about how to win friends and influence people, right? You know, so he's just pretty blunt about it. He doesn't hold back at all. And, and he reminds them that so many of the prophets, the people that they bragged about and, you know, said were their ancestors, many of the prophets were actually killed for speaking God's truth. You know, I don't know if you realize it, but these famous prophets, Isaiah, Amos, Joel, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah, all the prophets were opposed. This group were literally killed for bringing God's message to God's people, by God's people. I mean, that's what he's trying to say to them. And they had even killed the one who, John the Baptist, who had come to tell them Jesus was coming. Remember, uh, Herod, who was a Jew, put him to death as well. And then they had killed Jesus. You know, it reminds me of a parable that Jesus told about a landowner who built a vineyard. Perhaps you remember this, built a vineyard and a wine press, and he, you know, planted it and everything, and leased it out to some tenants, and when it came time to come and receive the the fruit from uh, the vineyard, he went, he sent a servant to get it, and they killed the servant, and they, they beat him, and they killed him. And then finally, the, the owner said, I will send my son who will go to collect. Sure they'll respect him. And when they saw the owner's son, they said, let's kill him then we'll get the vineyard. And, and they killed the son as well, representing Jesus. And then the moral of the story was that God's going to bring his vengeance. God's going to take care of it. The owner killed all of the tenants and tucked the land. So that's kind of the same thing that Stephen was saying, the same words of Jesus as well. So Stephen didn't sugarcoat it at all. He laid the truth out there. And you can imagine the response. I mean, if they had been humble, if they had been open, the Holy Spirit could have worked in their hearts to convict them of their sin. They could say, well, we, you know, we, we know we're wrong and we, we need to repent. But they were exactly as Stephen had said. They were stiff-necked. They were hard-hearted, resistant to the Holy Spirit. And so it says in verse 54, <clears throat> when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. So they were enraged, and they growled, and they ground their teeth at him like wolves would do. You know, see the picture of the wolves lined up, growling, gritting their teeth at him. It says, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You know, I think at this point, the tension was so high that everybody there knew where this was going. And Stephen certainly did. He knew that this wasn't going to turn around, more than likely. And so he turned his eyes up to the heaven, and he saw Jesus, the one that he had been so boldly proclaiming. He's seeing Jesus. So it's an amazing picture of, of Jesus being there present and all this is going on. It says, at this, they covered their ears and yelled at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Now, if you read throughout the Bible in the Old Testament as well, stoning was a common punishment in Bible times because it was mob actions and everybody kind of participated in that. It wasn't just one person pulling a trigger or flipping a switch to kill someone. Everybody got in on it and they let them vent their anger And uh, so they would drag the person outside the city. They would throw them over a cliff of some area. And then they would proceed to roll these big boulders over the hill at them. So they would throw big stones. And then everybody got in the game. They would throw rocks, smaller stones until the victim was dead. Pummel them with stones until they were dead. And sometimes even burying them with stones. So I want you to think of it here just a moment there, is that, that uh, these were the men who were supposed to be religious leaders. These were older men. These were the elders of the city. These were the people who were supposed to be distinguished and of deep character, and they're acting so ridiculous. They're venting their anger. They covered their ears. They yelled at the top of their voices. It sounds like a child, doesn't it? And ran at him, dragged him out of the city, threw rocks until he was dead, and it says, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. Yes. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. You know, if you think about it, these words were similar to what Jesus had said on the cross, were they not? Where Jesus said, Father, uh, do not hold this sin against them. And then he also committing his spirit to God. And you know, I think this showed, even though uh, Stephen's words had been kind of harsh at the end it shows the really, truly nature of Stephen. And the Bible says he fell asleep. You know, that's how the Bible describes a believer when they die, that they fall asleep. And that's a really beautiful picture. And, I, you know, I kind of identified this as I, I read this because I saw this with my mom this past summer when she passed away. That uh, she was there. Each breath became further and further apart and, and, and a little bit weaker until finally she just fell asleep in the Lord. And that's a beautiful thing to think about. That's how a believer goes to be with God. And and even in this violent moment where they were throwing rocks and screaming, you know, peacefully, Stephen just quietly fell asleep. And he became the first Christian martyr, but not the last, certainly not the last. And many, many more have died rather than deny Jesus Christ. But you know what? You might say, wow, that's a sad ending to the story, isn't it? But it didn't happen in vain. It really didn't. His last words were that God would not hold the sin of the attackers against him, the, them, but they would come to know Jesus. And here, oddly enough, his prayer was being answered at this time, even though the person would not know it at the moment. At Stephen's death, we're introduced to a man who would become the church's worst enemy in a short time, but later on would one day become the greatest apostle and missionary of all time. Here's what it says in verse 58. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. They laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. So the old men took the lead in killing Stephen, but the real alpha wolf wolf of the group was a young man who had a passion for God, but he had a hatred for Christianity. And we're going to see how this story is going to play out. That's why I love the book of Acts. There's so much cool, so many cool stories that explain so much of church history. In verse uh, ch- uh, 1 of chapter 8, it goes on to say, And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But, God, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So the wolves have gotten a taste of blood. And you know what happens when wild wolves get the taste of blood? It just whets their appetite. And so a persecution broke out against the church. Really the first broad, widespread persecution happened right here. Christians under persecution began to leave Jerusalem and scatter all over the place, taking the gospel with them. You know, it seems like the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. That's what it says. Everyone except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Remember that Jesus had said, you are to take the gospel into Jerusalem, into Judea, into Samaria, later to the utter part, part, uttermost parts of the world. We're going to see that play out in the book of Acts a little bit later on. But this great persecution broke out. Only apostles stayed in Jerusalem. Now, you might ask why. Why did the apostles stay there? Well, this was kind of the headquarters of the church still going forward. And all of this that was happening was really illegal. And remember, uh, going back to Jesus' crucifixion, the Jews didn't really have the authority to kill anybody. Only Romans could do that. But what was happening was that these outriders, (laughs) these uh, outliers decided, you know what, we're going to take it into our own hands. And the Roman government, as long as things didn't get too bad, would let them get away with it. So it wasn't as public as Jesus' crucifixion, but it was happening. It was illegal. The apostles were high profile. So more than likely, they were left alone for fear of how the people would respond. And also remember, they weren't having much luck keeping them in jail anyway. So they're like, let's just let the leaders go and let's attack the common people down there. The sheep, the flock was attacked and they fled. And the leader of this was a man named Saul, And we'll learn more about him as we go on. But he became the leader, ravaging the flock, breaking up worship, small worship services in homes, spying out who was a Christian, going into their home, beating them up, dragging them off to prison, trumped up charges, you know, of insurrection, I'm sure, and killing many of them. You know, when you think about it, this is how similar that many of our, uh, many Christians are treated around the world today. Uh, they don't have the freedom to gather publicly in large groups like we have. They have to worship small groups at home and privately. And uh, while it may not be legal in countries like India, for example, it may not be legal to actually kill Christians, a lot of these people, uh, their enemies, are given freedom to do so. In fact, our missionaries in India, Jay Henry and Ernest, are still being persecuted. They're still being falsely charged and accused and forced to defend themselves against a government official that keeps badgering them about their mission work. You know, they, they don't have the right to kill them legally, but they have the right to badger them. They're given freedom to do that, kind of hands off because they're Muslim and Hindu extremists. But in other places in India, Muslims and Hindus actually attack and even kill Christians. And are allowed to do that and get away with it. So that's kind of what's happening here. It's like these uh, renegade uh, Jewish people are kind of operating undercover. And Saul, people know, but they get away with it. And Saul began attacking the church with passion. Also remember that Saul was a member of the Sanhedrin itself. So he was a member of the group that was listening to uh, Stephen. And he was immune to what Stephen was saying. He was very well respected in his circles. And to his credit, uh, Saul honestly thought that what he was doing was right and was pleasing to God. But you know what? God is going to honor Stephen's prayer through the life of Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul. You know, God never wastes an opportunity to find good in bad. He never wastes a tragedy. God has a way of doing that. You may think that Stephen's death was a final goodbye, which it was, a, a tragedy, a horrible thing. But his death actually galvanized the church to move out in faith because there was a danger of the church being localized in Jerusalem and never getting around to getting out into Judea and Samaria, never getting far away from the home base there, just enjoying the fellowship. But God had bigger plans for the church, and the church had to spread. In fact, in verse 4, chapter 8, <coughs> those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So the first mission effort of the church was actually forced by persecution. Jesus had said, go, and they said, we wanna stay. And Jesus said, no, I think you're gonna go. Let me show you how it's gonna work. And that's actually how it happened. And so it was forced by persecution. The enemies of the church thought that they would intimidate and paralyze the church, but they just made the church explode in missions because the gospel was pervasive. It wasn't limited to Jerusalem, a place, a specific group of people, it's gonna go around the world. And maybe it was Stephen's forced message that planted a seed in Saul's heart, a seed that took a while to find root and eventually grow, but one day would lead him to Jesus, along with a lot of help from God. We'll read about that story in a, in, in a week or so. But the bottom line is that God can use the worst of situations for his glory. And when we think that nothing good could possibly come of a situation, remember that God has a way of using those things, and God can make great things come from it. Let me give you an example that. On Sunday, January the 8th, 1956, on the shores of a a lonely river deep in the jungles of Ecuador, there was a group of five missionaries. They had gone in. They had been trying to contact this tribe, this um, tribe that nobody had ever reached before, and a cannibal tribe as well. And they tried to contact them, you know, with gifts and communicate and indicate they'd like to meet with them. And so they let them land in there and they take them in. And unfortunately, they murdered these five missionaries who had come to tell them about Jesus. What a horrible tragedy. I, I, many of us weren't even alive or remember that when it happened. But we've heard the story. And to many people, this death seems like a senseless tragedy uh, many could only see these five young missionaries who were young men who were so passionate about the gospel that wanted to reach this tribe, uh, their careers and their ministries cut short, the five widows who were left, the fatherless children that, that survived. But you know what? God did an amazing work uh, through those five men, even in their deaths. And the blessing still reverberates through people like Elizabeth Elliot, who was one of the five women whose husbands was murdered. She went on later, she and her son went on, there's a movie or two about this, to end up contacting those people and won many of them to Jesus. And their life and their death is inspirational, has inspired many, many missionaries going forward. So God can do some great things out of horrible tragedies. And in the same way, Stephen's death might seem sort of meaningless at first. I mean, you might look at this young guy that was just, just became a deacon, right? And then he began to grow and he becomes an evangelist and a, and a, and a teacher And a ministry of power and eloquence was cut short abruptly. His ministry seemed to end in failure. His first sermon, nobody seemingly was brought to faith. It's a great sermon, but nobody responded in a positive way, at least. And all that came out of that was just more persecution about the church. But you know what has always been true, and, and I love the way it says, is that the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is what spread the church around the world, and God got the glory. You know, this is an amazing story, and really the story of Stephen ought to be an inspiration to us as a church, and as individuals as well, to remind us that even when we're doing what is right, wolves are going to come. In fact, sometime when we're doing what's right, an indication of that will be opposition, that wolves will come, wolves will attack, they will intimidate, try to cancel God's message. And some of them, like Saul, will do it in the name of religion. But we have to remember that the message is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God is not limited to a place or a time, that God has a people, and that those who follow Jesus are now the ones that come to know him and are his children, his family. And we must remain true to the gospel and the message of Jesus Christ. I I hope this is an inspiration to you. You know, um, when you become a deacon, you may not have to be a martyr. I hope you don't do that. But we don't know, right? We don't know what God may take us. One thing is true is our willingness to serve God will take us into deeper commitment and lead us to places that we could never imagine. And it's wonderful to know that God has a reward for those who are faithful. In fact, the Bible speaks about the martyr's reward, those who actually give their life for Christ. So I want to challenge you this morning. I want to encourage you to think about this, ponder on this. You know, what would make someone give their life, lay down their life for Jesus? It would be a conviction that his truth needs to spread to the entire world. And may that challenge us to do the same thing. We're going to have a time of response here. I'll be up here if you want to talk to somebody about your next step on your journey. I'm available here if you want someone to pray or you want to just come pray on your own. uh, I would encourage you to do that. Let's pray together. Father, Thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for the story of Stephen. As tragic as it is, God, it's also inspirational. God, it reminds us that that there is a cause worth giving everything, including our life for, and that, God, the reward is much greater than the sacrifice. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you that we can read these stories and be encouraged and inspired today. And, Lord, I ask that you would help each of us to be faithful in every way possible. Lord, that we would be honored by you one day, as Stephen will be. Lord, we love you and we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and worship him.